plan B and plan C. But it strikes me that one of the benefits of doing that as part of your process is that the existence of these backup plans makes it psychologically okay to adapt, evolve, subdue your need to be right. You know, even if plan A, B, and C is not going to work out because some new you know thing comes about, like you're, you're describing, you're not going to be so fixated on on your need to be right. You're going to be fixated on the goal, and and the existence of those plans makes that okay. Yeah, and so and, and in business. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today, we're going to be continuing our interview. Shane Snow and I talked to Al Buford, former Army Ranger, former member of the Army Special Mission Unit. If you didn't catch Al's miniseries on the show, please go back on some old episodes and listen to those as well as part one of this interview. But Shane, where should we go with part two here? So in hearing Al talk about his wisdom and his principles in business and a lot of stuff that does tie back to, you know, elite military units and then the lessons he's learned and the people he's learned from. I keep hearing these key words that I want to dig into that that have a lot to do with what we've been talking about with intellectual humility. So I keep hearing Al say respect, keep Al hearing Al say trust. And and so that's where I'd like to start here. You, you talked, Al, about how respect is really important. You're working with a team. You need to have respect for them. Respect is what allows you to hear hard feedback. It's what allows you to put the team first. How do you develop respect for people who don't know? And as a leader, how do you encourage people to treat each other respectfully and to develop the kind of respect that allows them to to then have the kind of trust they need to work together? But I, I guess, can you talk about what respect looks like to you and how you encourage it and how you, you kind of call out when respect isn't there and bring people back to a place of respect? Well, there, there, there's a lot to it. For example, you know, behaviorally, there's behavior, there's there's tonality, there's, you know, what words you choose to use. You know, for example, picking up a piece of paper that's laying on the ground in the office that fell off of somebody's desk and handing it to them, even though they might be the lowest paid person in the company, as opposed to just walking past it. Well, that's respectful, right? As, you know, as opposed to thinking, well, I'm in this position and they're in this position, you know, far beneath me. And, you know, I'm not going to uh, waste my time talking to them for 10 minutes about their weekend or whatever. You know, it's 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 just, just basic human things. You know, if you mentally place yourself above other people, you know, back to the Arbinger material, you know, you're kind of seeing them as objects. And and we talk a lot about that. You know, I, I, I give classes on the Arbinger material, the outward mindset regularly. In fact, I'm doing one at five o'clock with a guy we have that's overseas in a leadership position. And I gave it last night to two guys who were uh, going overseas uh, for a couple of hours and they've got the books and then we're going to do follow-up. And and I do that every week with cycles of people. And it's all about seeing everyone as a person and not an object and, you know, how you interact with them, talking down to people, being having a condescending tone, being impatient with them because I'm important and they're not. For For example, you know, those, that's disrespectful, you know, having time for somebody, all those things, all those things communicate respect, 
I don't sure if I fully answered your question, but that's I just ran out of juice. So go ahead and ask me whatever you want. Well, I think my question there is who from your who from your career in special operations set an example on that for you? Wow. There were so many. There were so many. You know, I for a while I kept a little notebook and I and I lost it somewhere along the way, but there were so many good leaders that that were were great examples of how to treat other people, people who had so much experience, and I was just this brand new guy. And they would, you know, take the time to coach you on whatever the thing was that you were trying to do better, and and, and do it in a respectful way. Can you and, can you um, pick one of them? Can you pick sure. one of them and tell us? Yeah. So there was this guy uh, I talked about him on the last podcast. His name was uh, Sergeant Dietrich. And he was a squad leader in another squad when I was in uh, Second Ranger Battalion. And he was this guy who was, he looked the part like he was from a movie set. He was, he was, he had, he was fit looking and perfect posture. And he had this iron looking jaw and, you know, the steel eyes. And and he had the uh, big dive watch. And he was just, everybody, everybody wanted to be like Dietrich. Right. And so I was a private. I was like as new as you could be, 19 years old. And we were on a rappel tower one day and it was a fairly new thing for me. I'm up on top of this big tower and, and, and Sergeant Dietrich was running the tower. And I was a little bit nervous and he could pick that up. He was watching me. And, I, you know, I had my harness on and I was all tied in and with the snap links. And I started to back over this. And you're supposed to get into an L position with your feet against the tower and your body's vertical. And he's talking me into this position. And the way he was talking to me and the, his voice inflection, his tonality, the way he, the, you know, he, he looked at me and, and he was all focused. All of his attention was, was in talking me through that. It was a very confident person. And the confidence that was within him, I was absorbing that like in the moment. And it was a real magical experience for me. And I, and I remember it like it was yesterday and it was 30 years ago. The I wanted to be like that guy. I want to be able to lead like that. I want to be able to instill confidence in other people the way he did in me. And so I just sort of started studying people who could do that. And 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 he was certainly, you know, one of the first. I just remember it so clearly. Um, and conversely, there were a handful of leaders who were the opposite. They relied on position power and they relied on, you know, do it because I said so, because I'm in charge. And they were very condescending, very curt. And uh, there were just a handful of those. It wasn't like there was everybody. But but I was like, I would like, take notes on this because when I would get in a situation where I had to deal with somebody like that on a regular basis, I think I, I saw it as an opportunity to learn what not to do when it was my turn to be in charge. So I tried to see the opportunity and not, not the best situation. And uh, somewhere along the line, I lost that notebook. But I, I think I retained most of the lessons. So... One of the things I, I've, you know, I, I haven't even done, you know, ROTC or, or anything remotely close to uh, to military training. But what I know from the movies is that the cliche, the stereotype is that in the military, your commanding officer yells at you and says, you're less than nothing, you're maggots. And, and what I'm hearing, though, is that the more successful leadership role in the military is more of a mentor, more of someone who treats you. I love this heuristic of remembering that people are humans, not objects. You know, they're, they're not just pieces on the chessboard that you're moving around. They're human beings. And it, it strikes me that, you know, when you, you said these counterexamples, 
strikes me that if you, whether we're talking about military or, or business or anything, if you have to lean on your position of authority to make the case that you should get your way, then perhaps your case isn't strong enough. Perhaps you actually aren't confident that what you're saying is uh, can stand on its own if you don't lean your authority on the scale in order to tip things your way. I'm curious what you think about that. Well, my, my favorite quote as it relates to that is from Margaret Thatcher. She said, being a leader is like being a lady. If you have to tell everyone that you are, you probably aren't. <laughs> I think that's perfect. It's so applicable. A great shout out to Margaret Thatcher. So. Uh, oh, I'll go ahead. You had something else. So, not no, not really. Go ahead. It's. If, I think I, I lost my train of thought. But if there's, if you want to rephrase that or have me come in with more, just please hit me again with that. Well, so you you mentioned before the show when we were talking that your current business partner, who you've been working with for a long time, someone you would trust immensely, used to be your direct report or a new recruit or someone in a position lower yeah. than you when you yeah. you met them in the army. I'm curious about how you built the kind of relationship with someone who, you know, from the taxonomy of, you know, the hierarchy of the military was beneath you to someone who is very clearly now an equal partner and uh, someone who you trust immensely. Can you tell a little bit of the story of how you developed that relationship where, you know, there's a power imbalance mm-hmm. uh, in the beginning and yet, you know, now you're, you're doing business together, helping companies and thousands of people and, you know, making lots of money. Can you talk about developing that? Sure. So Greg Craddock, he's our CEO, actually. I work for him, right? So when I was a platoon sergeant in 3rd Ranger Battalion, this was after having been in 2nd Ranger Battalion and having been in my special mission unit. So now I'm a platoon sergeant. And we came back from a road march one night in the summertime in Fort Benning, really hot and sweaty. And we had all of our gear and we're starting to clean our weapons. And, and this four guys are lined up out in the hallway, standing at parade rest with all their duffel bags. They had just come in from training. And just like when I was in that same position, you know, all day, every day for your whole military existence, it's a, you're a trainee and somebody's yelling at you. And this is the first opportunity in your life for somebody to not yell at you when you show up at your platoon. Well, the the reputation in some parts of that organization of the Ranger Regiment, so there, was, there was some hazing, there was some harassment or whatever in some circles, but I, I didn't do that. It wasn't done to me, and I didn't do it to anybody. So I said, hey, guys, come on in, relax, welcome, welcome to the platoon, be on time, have all your gear, be ready to train, and we will do our part to help you get up to speed on everything that's important around here. And nobody's going to haze you and nobody's going to harass you. That's just not the way we do it here. And you could see them all just like, wow, what a big relief, you know. And Greg was one of those guys. And he was older than the average guy because he had uh, been to college and played college football. And uh, he was probably four years older than the average guy that he was standing there with. And so he was more mature. And, uh, you know, we got along great. And uh, so then years, I went back to my unit my special mission unit and he got out of the army and went to special forces. Then he later went on to work for the government and we stayed in touch a little bit over the years. And then we end up years later going into business together. And he, he literally, I was literally sitting on my curb outside my house and he rolled up, I forget what I was doing on some yard work or something. And he rolled up and said, Hey, um, you want to talk? And he invited me to, to go into business with him. And uh, he had a, he had a pretty good idea about what he wanted to do. And uh, our values were in alignment about how we wanted to deal with people, which is really important. Values alignment. When, I, when people talk to me about being an entrepreneur, I'll talk about values for just a minute. Is, is What I tell them is when you get your three or four or five partners together 
your values really need to be in alignment because every single decision you make every day is based on those values. And so if you've got three or four guys who are really sort of honest and ethical and they're going to follow the rule book and they're not going to take any shortcuts and they're going to treat people a certain way. And then you got a couple of other guys who are always looking for shortcuts and they don't want to pay their invoices. They don't want to pay their bills and they don't want to pay their taxes and, and they want to treat people poorly. Well, all day, every day, you're going to be, you know, or if they're crooks or whatever, you're, you're going to be fighting every day over every decision. But if your values are in alignment, then things are going to go much smoother. So I, you know, either they all need to be really good, you know, honest people, or they need to all be a bunch of crooks. So things can operate efficiently either way, you know, the values need to be in alignment. So how do you handle it when members of your team are not showing the kind of respect that, that you know is important for the teamwork? And, and let's say this is a matter of maturity or a lapse or a mistake rather than a misalignment of values. What do you do when you notice that people are not showing the kind of respect that you know is going to be important? How do you handle that as a leader? Well, we make the expectations very clear about, you know, seeing everyone as a person, treating everyone as a person, not as an object. And, uh, you know, helping out, help, helping other teammates when something isn't, maybe it's not part of your own, in your lane for what you're, you're, you're required to do every day, but you can clearly see they need help with something. It can be recruiting or whatever, and there's a big crunch in that part of the business, and people just sort of dogpile it and help. Make the expectations clear, and ultimately provide the positive coaching, you know, set the example and provide the coaching. But if somebody, if their values, if you find, if you discover that somebody's values are so far out of alignment with your own, well, then that's that, that's a situation where they, they need to end up working somewhere else because it's not a good fit. And, and, and we, we had to do that in a very few rare cases. We, we had to do that where the person just was not going to treat all their colleagues with respect. And no matter what we did, that, that change was not going to happen within them. And so they had to go. So one of the things that I have wrestled with uh, in business quite a bit is the the tension between people being recognizing that people who bring different skills and different perspectives and different ideas to the team are going to add something that just clones of myself are not. And yet with that comes the potential for conflict between, you know, I, I think the big values, things like integrity and honesty, those are, are much more clear cut, but smaller things like smaller priorities, you know, or, or just ways of we roll differently, right? With the contributions that we can uniquely add come potential conflict. I'm curious how you as a leader manage this, I guess, the, the balance between wanting to, you know, this is how you learn, right, from people who are going to bring different things and push you and teach you things, while also not allowing that to disrupt the, you know, the unity of the team and the feeling of respect that you get in the team. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. Well, you definitely want uh, different people with different backgrounds. So for example, if I go out and hire you know, if we are in our company build based on the three founders, you know, myself and Greg and Rob, you know, we're all former military guys. We're all rifle and body armor guys. If we go out and hire a whole bunch of people that are just like us, well, we're not going to have experts in contracts and accounting and legal and HR. You know, we're not going to have those things that we don't know how to do. So you want people in a business who can do the things that you can't, whether that's selling or accounting or contracts or, or whatever. And so, Figure out what you do well and figure out where the gaps are and hire people who can fill the gaps. Don't hire people just like you because you're so awesome. Yeah. And so that's the ego that's, thing. Right. So that's part of it. The other part is back to the process. So you got eight people in a room talking about a process that's not being executed well or efficiently. 
and you map it out, before that whole process starts, you have to define consensus. Consensus means I can live with it and I can support it. It doesn't mean it's the one best thing for me in, in my role, but I understand the whole of the company and its needs and what we're trying to accomplish. And so I can live with it and I can support it. That's what we're shooting for at the end of mapping out this process. And so consensus, and, and, and literally that happened like last Friday, we did a, we did a process mapping uh, on something and we had people from a bunch of different parts of the company all in the room. And I started with defining consensus and then we went about mapping out the process. That's excellent. I, to switch gears a little bit, one of the things that caught my attention and listening to your other conversations with, with Jess on the podcast is this idea of being situationally aware and so that you can shift to an alternate course of action. And, you know, and I think this is a good segue from the process thing. Sometimes, actually, maybe often, the process that we plan on at the beginning is not how things turn out. And, you know, in the military, how often can you actually stick firmly to plan A? And, you know, and in business, how often are we having to adapt on the fly, right? And, and so how do you get around the reality that people want to stick to the plans that they come up with, that they want to stick to the process, but you often need to go outside the process. And yet, you know, our, our tendency of what we want to do is really nail the process. How, how do you deal with that, that reality? Well, one of my favorite philosophers, Mike Tyson, said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face, right? And that's the way everything in the military is, that you know there's somebody out there wanting to punch you in the face. And so the enemy has a vote in how things are going to play out that day. And so it, it is a it is a core tenet of uh, certainly infantry, uh, ranger, and special operations organizations that every, every training exercise, every rehearsal involves exercising your backup plans and your contingencies. And so you'll be practicing actions on the objective and whoever the uh, exercise controller is will say, okay, this squad leader is out. You know, he's a casualty. And so not only does everybody have to bump up to replace them in leadership, but then you've got to go back and collect your casualties and take care of them after the fact. So it throws a, it throws a, a curveball into the, everything that you planned on doing. Or we thought the enemy were, they're going to hit us here, but then they hit us from over here or whatever. Um you know, they'll fail key pieces of equipment. They will fail an aircraft, you know. And so these these 50 guys that you expected to have didn't show up because that aircraft got turned around. And so now everybody's got to adjust and cover down on their sectors. And so backup plans, uh, alternate courses of action, contingency plans, it is just, it is drilled into everything you do with regularity. And so there's no real thought that, we're going to roll out the door and what we expect to happen is how this is going to play out. Cause it's, it's in, even in training, it never does. So it, it strikes me that perhaps the, so I, I mean, I love this planning backup plans, having a plan B, a plan C, but it strikes me that one of the benefits of doing that as part of your process is that the existence of these backup plans makes it psychologically okay to adapt, evolve, subdue your need to be right. You know, even if plan A, B, and C is not going to work out because some new, you know, thing comes about, like you're, you're describing you're not going to be so fixated on on your need to be right. You're going to be fixated on the goal, and and the existence of those plans makes that okay. Yeah, and so in in, in business, your key business processes, such as getting people paid, recruiting. You know, if you're in your manufacturing, it's production. All of those key business processes. You know, you need to have backup plans. You know, if you're recruiting, 
And the one of the key people you need to go support a contract uh, might be an older person who's not computer savvy and your whole process is electronic. You got to have a low-tech version that can accommodate them to help them get through your pipeline because you need them on the mission as an example of a backup plan. So uh, there's a, a question that aligns with all of the stuff we've been talking about that I like to ask people. And so, you know, blindsiding you with this, but this is, this is actually one of my favorite job interview questions because it gets at, it gets people to tell stories of when they were, were forced to be intellectually humble and they were forced to be humble in general. I'm curious if in, you know, all of these experiences that you've had in your career, if there's a story that sticks out to you of a time when you had to admit that you were really wrong about something that you believed you were really right about. Hmm. Hmm. I'm trying to think. I, I know it's happened. I know it's happened for sure. And it's 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 easy to be intellectually humble when you're not a very intellectual person. Go, go ahead, Jess. Well, I, I'll go first. And then maybe you can hear one of mine. I, I was so determined when I was running my private equity fund. I'm this 28-year-old CEO that it was okay for us to charge fees based on the size of the fund previous to the, all those checks getting written, right? And then when we have 2008 happen and all those checks don't get written mm-hmm. and our fees are out of line, and, and even though it was within the disclosed documentation, so from a legal perspective, it was okay. From an accounting perspective, it was not okay. And I had had so many fights with our internal partner, who was our accountant, that he just didn't understand private equity and that it didn't need to happen that way. And we're, we're an exception. We're not just regular operating business. This is just fine. And it was not just fine. And I've been arguing that way for like a couple of years. And real life proved me wrong, you know? Yeah. So that, yeah, that prompted me. So with Patriot Group, I can remember in our very, very early days, we were certain, the three of us were absolutely certain for a number of reasons that there were a couple of significant contracts that we were just going to nail it and we were going to own those things in short order, maybe a couple of years. And and we were going to be rolling in the tens of millions in gross revenue because of who we were, who we knew, what we could do and our past performance with other companies and and we just we just we just knew we were solid and so we were going to be uh we were going to be an overnight success and it, it took us it, we were lean there was no pay for the first 6 months because there was no money coming in and that was a big wake up call you know the the overnight success took several years to start getting even a reasonable amount of traction and so but it eventually came because we refused to quit so that's that's one where you know there were times where we we were sitting around with each other thinking back on our thoughts of how this was going to go and realizing it wasn't going that way and, but still committing to each other that we were going to stay you know we're going to we're going to stick it out Greg and Rob and I every any one of us could have left and taken a job with some other company you know going back to the same kinds of things we were doing with other businesses but we we just we weren't brilliant we weren't we we just we were willing to work hard and we weren't going to quit and we were going to make something work somehow, some way. And eventually we got a little bit of traction and we built on that a little bit at a time. And then we had a couple of breaks after that built on success. But yeah, early failure was a, was a big wake up call. So I, I had a story pop into my head as, as you two are sharing these that as a, a journalist, which is my primary job, there's often stories you get excited about because, you know, it's going to be a great story. People are going to love this. It's going to, you know, and and sometimes I'm thinking about these in terms of this is going to make me look good when I tell this story. 
And so you get really fixated on it. And, and then what happens when the story doesn't turn out to be so good, I think this is where the temptation for you know, less ethical journalists are is to you know, twist the story so that it does work and those end up usually not being good stories anyway. But I, a few years ago, ended up taking this trip to Cuba to do this long road trip across Cuba, kind of out in the boonies, to research this story of who my writing partner, I thought, was this unsung hero. Doing, you know, Cuba is a very complicated and, you know, and messy story of, you know, hopes and dreams being crushed and all of that. And there was this woman who we found who we thought was this unsung hero from history who uh, we had all lined up to do this great biopic about. You know, this was going to be a, a film that we could write about this woman's life and the heroism that she had. She started out as, you know, as a nurse treating, you know, rape victims from the war. And and, and we, we went on this road trip. We invested all this time. And then halfway through the trip, we learned that this character that we thought was going to be this great story actually turned into uh, a person who is complicit in a lot of murders and, extrajudicial killings in the Castro government. And, uh, and we were like, what do we do? It's such a great story that now turns out to be so tragic. And, you know, how do we celebrate this person who had this downfall? And, uh, and you know, we had to abandon the project. And we, we thought about, well, well, maybe we can make this a Breaking Bad kind of story, a person who goes wrong. And, <laughs> uh, but it just, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't right. And it wasn't what we wanted to do. And maybe at some point, you know, this turns into something that informs some other story that we tell. But letting go of that after all this investment and all of these, you know, producers who are yeah. interested in this story – and having to tell them, hey, we were wrong. Upon further information, this is not something we want to do. That's really hard. And, you know, money and reputation can be on the line. Uh, so as you two were sharing, sharing those, I, I thought about the time when I lost potentially a big opportunity in having to do that. But, you know, being able to do that makes it easier the next time when you have to, you know, adapt or about face. And that's yep. what intellectual humility is about. Yep. Well, I think my... I know we're kind of winding down here for part two, but I, I feel like maybe the last direction for me is, you know, I've talked to both of you guys about we're trying to raise our big real estate investment fund at Greystoke, right? And Al, you and I have had many offline conversations about sales and things like this, and I'm out beating the streets meeting with our investors right now. Al, I'm interested in any advice you have or, or anything you tell yourself about walking the balance beam of like, I need to have enough confidence in what I'm doing to attract people, but enough humility to learn from potential customers or to make it inviting to want to, to want to work with us. Do you have any, any ideas about walking the confidence, humility, tightrope in sales? Well, I think I have a couple of standard things that I do. I, I try not to walk into meeting somebody and it's cold and I'm trying to build myself up and explain, you know, my background or whatever. I always try to get a warm intro from some common person that we know, and they say, "Hey, this is the this is this this is Al, and this is who he is and what he's about. I've known him for this many years, and so I the credibility is built for me by somebody else that this is a guy who is reputable and you can trust him, and this is the reasons why, whatever. And so then when I go into the person, oh, in this company they've done great work for us or whatever." And when I go in to have a meeting with somebody, uh, I don't have to spend any time trying to sell myself. I spend all my time listening to what they're trying to accomplish and what's important to them, not just organizationally, but as a person, what are they trying to accomplish? Are they trying to get promoted? Are they trying to grow and sell this business? Are they trying to 
you know, buy a new pair of shoes for the kid. What's important for them right now? And, and how can I help that, you know, in this, in this transaction? And if I, if I can't help, then maybe I can refer them to somebody who can. And so I've established some credibility with them that way. And maybe we do business together later. So all of this is making me think that they, there have to be a lot of people in your organization or people that you've worked with throughout the years that uh, when they're asked, what's an example of a humble leader in your life that they say, Al Buford. And uh, I, I think that what we've heard in these last couple of, of episodes we've done with you is uh, how humanist your approach is to, to business and to working with people, treating people like humans, getting to understand them. What you just were talking about is really about really seeing things from a, a very human point of view and recognizing that humanity in others. I, I think the last question that I would love to ask before we, we close is, who do you think of as an example of someone who is an incredibly humble leader? Who's the example that comes to your mind when you think about this topic? You know, there are many so my business partner, Greg Craddock, he comes to mind right away. He, you know, he has his MBA and he's the guy I told you about, you know, met him in the Ranger Battalion and he, you know, he's done a lot of things with respect to his work for the government. And uh, he's one of those people who like, I'm more of a process oriented person. I've got a bunch of checklists and I go every day, I go down my checklist and I knock things out and People skills are something I think about and put effort into. He is naturally gifted at perceiving and feeling all these humanistic things that, you know, we just described. It is like it is who he is. He walks into a room and he is gifted at perceiving everything that's going on. And it's like, I don't know, it's like magic with him and with me. It's it's something I have to think about and it's a conscious effort. And, uh, you know, he, he's incredibly humble. And uh, it, it's kind of infectious, you know, to be around that and uh, to to just sort of see areas where I can improve. And, you know, it's an attribute. It's a, it's a gift for him. Uh, and literally, I've been in meetings where I have said something, was addressing an issue or whatever, or maybe just lay, laying out a plan or whatever. And at the end of it, he comes over to me, of course, in private and says, hey, you know, when you said this, I saw this other person kind of clench up a little bit. It was pretty much, I think maybe you want to change your phrase to X next time you talk about this topic, you know, and, and it's just very careful about the way he would address that sort of a thing, but, but just picks up something that nobody else even caught. And so, and, and it's, it's, it's all, if it's all about him, then he's not going to pick up any of those things, but it's not all about him. He is just, he, he's a, he is really humble and, and aware and sensitive and feels everything that's going on with people around him. And so, yeah, uh, he, he comes, he, he comes to mind right away. So when I think about, you know, describing to people, explaining to people the power of these kinds of attributes, I, I think the, the question that says it all is who doesn't want to work with someone like that? I think that's, that's the yeah. kind of leader that people get in line, hoping that they can, they can make the cut to, to be part of that kind of team. So I think that's yeah. pretty incredible. Yeah. And the careers page on Patriot Group is, <laughs> what's, what's that <laughs> URL there? <laughs> patgroupi.com p-a-t-g-r-o-u-p-i.com just gonna be a little product placement in for them of course man thank um, you i gotta tell you guys this was so i've become such a fan of both of you this has actually been really fun for me to, to see the two of you interact so thanks so much for doing this guys hey i, I appreciate well, it. it it's my pleasure and um i'm i'm a big fan of uh, audiobooks thanks to my exposure to jess because i wasn't reading my meeting my reading goals and so I'm, I'm kicking it with Audible like all the time. So I'm going to have to uh, to look at your other books, Shane. And I went through the book list that you had on your website, and I've already written down a couple of others that I want to 
I want to pick up, but uh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, thank you. we should give a shout out to that. Everybody should be going to shanesnow.com and, and looking at that book list. I, I found some real gems on it, so. Oh, thanks, guys. <laughs> I appreciate that. Great. Okay, thanks, folks. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks. Bye now.